Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover Book 7 of The Dark Tower, The Dark Tower, Part 4, Chapters 1 through 3. Let's start the show! The three remaining members of the Cotet, Roland, Susanna, and Oi, begin their journey to the Dark Tower. First, they escape Castle Discordia, where Susanna uses Sterno to fend off a horrible centipede creature. Then, after a cold, hungry trek across the Badlands, they find Le Casse Royrus, the castle of the Crimson King. There they meet what look to be three versions of Stephen King, who provide information and deception. A brief check-in with Mordred shows that he is still growing and chasing Roland as this section ends. Jay, our readers will be happy to know that a major character does not die in this section after the last two episodes in which we had to deal with the deaths of Eddie and Jake. So we've got that going for us. Yeah, it's nice to just be able to read and not have to deal with characters dying. I mean, that's a lot. Unfortunately, not much happens in this section that's of interest. I think as you and I were talking about this section, there's not a whole lot here that carries us on. I think part of that is a letdown after really two action-packed sections over the last two pieces. I think King sort of slows us down a little bit, and probably we're getting back to a crescendo as we think things will probably build up as they get closer to the Dark Tower. There's things that happen here. The battle with this worm centipede creature, this discussion with the three Stephen Kings. We learn a little bit more about the Crimson King. But overall... Not a whole lot happening that really pushes the story a whole hell of a lot forward. I mean, it does seem like it just kind of goes along at the same pace of that worm in the tunnel, right? It's just like, all right. I I was half expecting, maybe hoping, that when they were making their way through that the underground portion of Castle Discordia and the lights were failing and things like that, and they, they heard a couple of big thumps. Mm. That it would be just like earlier in this book, or maybe in the previous book, where they passed by something spooky and they're like, yeah, something scary. If we went in that direction, bad stuff. But we're not going in that direction, so let's just keep going. I thought that was going to happen here, but it turned into a full-blown monster chase scene that seemed to go nowhere and not happen fast enough. Yeah, we're we're told specifically that the worm creature really doesn't have sides. It's not fighting for or against the Crimson King. It's of its own volition, like it's just hungry, Mm -hmm. which to some extent takes away from the story, I think. It's just sort of another obstacle in the way for Roland, but not a significant one like Mordred is or the Man in Black is or any of the other forces of the Crimson King, whether that be John Farson, etc. It's just sort of, hey, here's a thing in nature that just happens to be here and it's going to try to eat you and you've got to get away from it. I think that takes a little bit of the suspense out of it because we know that's probably not what's going to kill Roland and or the rest of the Cotet. So while there was maybe a little bit of excitement to it, it wasn't anything that really scared me to the extent that it could have. It's more like that giant worm in Empire Strikes Back that 
Yeah. It's not going to be the thing that eats the Millennium Falcon. They're going to fight another day, whether that be against Boba Fett or Darth Vader. But to your point, maybe that is just more of nature versus our protagonist, right? I mean, that's kind of the structure of this story or of this section of the book, I should say. First, they have to fight a giant worm that comes from another dimension or just has evolved to live in this tunnel or who knows what. But it's just nature. It's not, like you said, it's not a a soldier of the Crimson King. It's just fulfilling its biological function of looking for food where it can find it. Right. And that extends to the nature of how cold the weather is later. And we are treated to this long passage in the book of where (laughs) it's not so cold that you'll die. It's not so cold that you get frostbite and loose fingers or anything like that. It's just cold enough to be really, really miserable if you just had a sweater. (laughs) I think King did a good job of making me feel some sort of sympathetic angst with Susanna by, instead of feeling the cold through the pages, I was feeling the repetition of her wishing for a sweater (laughs) to the point where I just wanted to put a sweater on myself just to like somehow fulfill her her craving for that warmth. This felt like way too much time to just wish for a sweater and not much else happening. Agreed. So one of the things that does come out in this section is the relationship between Susanna and Roland. We have not seen necessarily the two of these characters connect in such a way, probably since the beginning of book three, when Susanna and Roland are doing some target practice when he's teaching her how to use the guns for the first time. Mm -hmm. Ever since then, when they've had conversations or when they've had any sort of relationship, it seems to be filtered in some way through Jake or Eddie. Yeah. We've not really had the two of them alone. You know, it's, it's Eddie and Roland and Susanna's married to Eddie. So then they get that piece or Susanna and Jake meet up earlier than Roland and Eddie do when the Cotets finally reformed at the beginning of this book. But it's been rare that we just get Suzanne and Roland alone. Not much choice now. Unless we want to spend a whole lot of time with Oi as the in-between between Suzanne and Roland, but we really don't get that. Some of the things that come out of their relationship is interesting. As you mentioned, Suzanne is really struggling, not only with the pain of the cold and the hunger as they trek across the Badlands, but also with the grief of the deaths of both Jake and Eddie. And she seems to wonder whether or not she can trust Roland. She knows he's so set on finding the Dark Tower. And yet at the same time as she's wondering whether or not she can trust him or not, he's really become her protector because he has to carry her and pull her and protect her. You know, At one point, they take watch and he says, I'll wake you up halfway through the night. And he wants to make sure she gets a good night's sleep that he doesn't do that. And so She's really dependent on him in some ways, not to say that she can't carry her own weight, but like the way that the relationship is at this point, she's very much dependent on him and yet having these strange feelings about whether or not I can trust him or not. Yeah. And it seems like her lack of trust or her instinct to not trust Roland, I think it's sort of maybe at a bigger picture level where like on these these moment to moment, day to day, mundane activities where they're just making their way through the Badlands or they're foraging for food or that kind of thing. Roland exhibits no reason for anybody to not trust him. But I think she's thinking like, 
what if I come between him and the tower? I know the story of what happened to Jake, and I have seen what Roland is willing to do in pursuit of the tower. We've basically accomplished our mission of saving the tower because we saved the beams. What's left here? Right. Am I just on the on the trail with a, a crazy man at this point who seems rational moment to moment, but what's going to set him off? What's interesting about that is that you said, you know, he might be crazy and she's not going sure what's going on inside her head. And of course, that's what Roland thought about her initially when she had her different personas. And Detta is one of those persona that keeps coming up and making more appearances than she has in a while. Yeah. You could sense Detta coming out when they're battling the worm, when they're approaching the Crimson King's castle. At one point before they go to bed at night, Roland can see it in her eyes that it's Detta that's looking at at him and she's very sassy. And there's just a lot of Detta here more than we're used to. And Roland had told her like, hey, we need you to ease that back a little bit. Yeah. And I got to say though, for all the time that I have been complaining about King hasn't done a very good job of truly merging Susanna's two personas, you know, like the Detta half comes through or the Teta half comes forward or the, or Detta says, I really cottoned on to the notion that through the magic of the door and perhaps the magic of Roland, he was able to do something that no form of psychiatry or drug therapy or any kind of brain medicine that we understand could ever accomplish for the problems that Odetta and Detta were struggling with. So to me, that meant that, and we were kind of told in, in plain text that these elements that were different, that had different personalities were merged into a new person, a whole person. And that person had a new name and a new identity and an, and an entirely new personality where she had, luckily for our, our protagonists, the best of both. She had the strength and the determination and the, the hard skills and the pleasant and intelligent and caring natures of both women. And now we have this new character, Susanna. But every time it was convenient or every time King needed a crutch, Detta shows up. Yep. But Odetta never shows up. All that seems to have happened is that Odetta changed her name to Susanna and Detta just never left. And I think that that was sort of very poorly done. Now, I've said all that, but Detta's appearances, at least now in this part of the book, this far into the story, I'm actually starting to kind of like it. Like, I think that maybe King lucked into this. The fact that he didn't do a good job of truly merging these characters and treating Susanna as a single person with many aspects and still continuing to have this like separate personality that just keeps coming forward when the story needs. Now it seems like it works. It has like an appeal of the Jekyll and Hyde or even like the Incredible Hulk. Mm. When Susanna needs to be stronger than she normally is, Detta comes forward. Anytime she struggles with something that she can't handle in her Susanna persona, she like Detta just comes forward. And whether it's internal monologue or, or trying to make a decision or just dealing with an outside threat, she's there. And Detta's always entertaining. 
I love how she talks. I, I love how much she curses. I love how she doesn't trust people. I guess it took eight books for it to happen, <laughs> but good job, King. I like it. I, I like having the, the dead a half doing the whole Jekyll and Hyde thing. And then when Susanna comes back, we hear the the mournful Susanna music. Do, 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 do. As she hitchhikes down the highway with her with her duffel bag. I wonder if part of the reason you say King has lucked into this, and some of it is, I, I think that this section is primarily told from Susanna's point of view. Mm-hmm. Like the trek across the Badlands, what's happening? We see it from her perspective, and we're we're in her thoughts a lot. And I think that that helps. I mean, we've mentioned many times how we don't get enough of Susanna's point of view on these things. So being within that, I think, helps play into what you're saying. Is it makes this character more interesting as we get to learn a lot about of the thoughts that she's having and what she's going through and what her thoughts are, even if they're thoughts that I'm sure you don't like, such as, "Hey, look." Boy looks nice and warm. Mm-hmm. I wonder what would happen if I turned him into a pair of gloves. Yeah, I was actually able to deal with that okay. I mean, I've seen that done in enough Bugs Bunny cartoons. <laughs> eh, it happens all the time. So one last piece on Suzanne and Roland's relationship is that we've been told that there's a lot of potential radiation or just sort of disease stuff happening out in these badlands and really... Throughout this whole world at this point, it seems like, you know, with the slow mutants, et cetera. And Susanna realizes that she has some sort of tumor on her mouth that doesn't seem to be healing and it might, in fact, be getting worse. And she tells Roland that if things get too bad, she wants him to cut that tumor out of her mouth. She also says, you know, if things come down to it and you need to shoot me, go ahead and do it. So it's just sort of an odd little piece here as we're talking about how she doesn't trust Roland and yet she's in fact trusting him with her life. Yeah. She trusts him with the most important thing she has is is her entire existence. Yes. So Sean, we'd be remiss if we didn't spend some time talking about the three copies of Stephen King. Yeah, that was sort of weird. There is a foreshadowing of this on the dedication page of my book, as there are three kings in pea coats, all sort of staring at me, the reader. And, you know, I thought it was an interesting illustration. I didn't realize that they were going to be three characters in the book later on as we yeah. got in there. One thing that they're obviously glamours, they're not really Stephen King. We're told that the reason that they take the form of Stephen King or have this glamour of Stephen King is because it's somebody that Roland would trust. Mm-hmm. And that's that's why why they took that form, which seems really odd to me because Roland has made it clear that, and I think he says in this section, he wouldn't trust King as far as he could throw him or his grandfather or something along those lines. Huh. And Susanna's never met him, so it, it doesn't do any good. But they, they keep up this glamour. And I'm not sure why King the writer has included this in there. I mean, do they are they supposed to represent King? Are they not supposed to represent King? Yeah. When we're first getting in there and Susanna's doing some armchair psychology, she's trying to say, oh, that's the ego, superego, and id of King. And they're really not. They don't seem to have many of King's qualities. And yet here they are. Yeah, and the whole 
psychology aspects to this. It's like it doesn't really map. It's just that, and as we later learn with through the glamour, these are actually three different people, and it just turns out that one of them's an asshole, <laughs> yeah. one of them's just sort of a sycophant, and the other one kind of is in charge of the other two. So he seems to be the reasonable one because they they listen to him. But the other two are just jerks. And actually, all three of them are jerks. So, yep. you know, the id, the id, she's like, oh, you're an asshole, so you must be his id, right? No, he's just an asshole. Yeah. Their names, we start to learn, at least the, the names for the moment are Femolo, Fumolo, and Fimolo. Yeah. I understand that that's a potential reference to Fee-Fi-Fo-Fum type of thing i think you pointed that out when we were talking and yeah i've seen it elsewhere and that was the first thing i thought of but i almost immediately forgot it and i didn't even try to keep track of their names because i got the sense that i don't think this is going to be important for very long and i'm glad i didn't spend a lot of time trying to track their names with who they represented because they quickly go by the wayside yeah i agree it, it just seemed random i mean they might as well have been the stay puffed marshmallow man <laughs> Because it, it just seemed like they picked an, uh, a person out of somebody, out of one of their heads, and said, we'll make ourselves look like three copies of that person. And it's just like the end of Ghostbusters. If somebody says you're a god, say yes. <laughs> yeah. Basically, what these three kings serve is an info dump of sorts. They do this info dump on the Crimson King. They are the representation of the temptation that's supposed to come before victory. Right. This is something that Roland has been saying all along to Susanna, like, this is going to be a rough trip. We're going to have a hard time. Just remember, before victory comes temptation. And he's told her that. And when the two of the kings come forward with wicker baskets that show food and sweaters, this is the temptation for Susanna. And obviously her and Roland are too smart to fall for that and shoot them dead. The glamour falls aside from the other one, and they learn a little bit more about the Crimson King before before moving on. Not a whole lot of interest there, but one thing I wanted to point out, Jay, and this is something that stuck with me for a while, is the fact that the baskets that the kings are holding are wicker baskets. Uh-huh. And this is always stuck in my mind, and this is from the Stephen King book, Dance Macabre, which is a nonfiction book that King wrote, I think that's from the late 70s. And it's really his thoughts on horror, mm -hmm. both the writing of horror and movies and just sort of why readers are interested in horror and what they get out of it and why he's chosen to write in horror. And this is a little bit of a long quote, but I think it's important because, it's, like I said, it's stuck with me. He says, it turned out that the kid I had been playing with, he had, this is when he was about four years old, had been run over by a freight train while playing on or crossing the tracks. Years later, my mother told me they had picked up the pieces in a wicker basket. My mom never knew if I had been near him when it happened, if it had occurred before I even arrived, or if I had wandered away after it happened. Perhaps she had her own ideas on the subject. But as I've said, I have no memory of the incident at all, only of having been told about it some years after the fact. And this was. Hmm. Even if he doesn't remember it, it was a story that was told to him long, long enough that it had an impact on King, that he saw a young boy probably die in a really horrific fashion when he was a young kid. And 
the pieces of the boy were put in a wicker basket. And like I said, that is part of the basis a little bit of the body, I think, drawing on Yeah, absolutely. Drawing on his life experience there and, and, and expanding that out. That little detail of they had picked up the pieces in a wicker basket has always just sort of stuck with me. And I think that's one of the things King does well is pick out what seems to be a tiny detail, but really make it very evocative and make it stick in your brain. And so as soon as I saw like these wicker baskets, I immediately thought back to that, even though I probably haven't read Dance Macabre in at least 30 years, but just sort of an interesting thing. Maybe only I would catch or maybe only it had an impact on me, but sort of spooky. Yeah, I think I read Dance Macabre about as long ago as you did, and I don't remember the, the, the bit about the wicker baskets. I read it so long ago that I probably was thought that it was called Dance Macabre. Mm. Before you learned how to read. Well, I knew how to read. I just didn't know how to pronounce. Ah. And this is where our, our listeners say, Sean, you never learned how to pronounce. <laughs> Still got it. Anything you want to add about these three kings? One thing that occurred to me was that all three of them were dressed in these really nice wool coats. And for pages and pages and pages, we'd been hearing Susanna wish she had a sweater. And so I figured, all right, well, when they killed them, when they shot the first two and the glamour went away and there was, they were still people with clothes on, right? Like they might not have been those fine pea coats that they could see in the glamour, but even like one more shirt, like just put that on. That'll make you so much warmer than true. But they didn't do that. Instead, they're like, oh, you have pieces of dead people in your wicker baskets uh i guess i'll pass yeah i don't know that's just me like calling out like you gotta be more practical like i do this all the time but if you're cold put on somebody else's clothes that they don't need anymore even mordred was smart enough to try that he put on some clothes that were falling apart and he eventually ended up not wearing them anymore because they just literally crumbled to dust but he tried yeah i'm cold but that flannel shirt that you're wearing, <laughs> dead guy, I'll, I'll take a pass. All right. Well, let's move on because we do learn from the kings a lot about the Crimson King, who they call Los for some reason. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Short for Lo Los Lobos? Short for Carlos? Yeah. It's definitely Carlos. <laughs> <laughs> Carlos the Crimson King. <laughs> so one thing that I found interesting about the Crimson King is that he doesn't seem to have any sort of master plan. You know, we've gotten this sense all the time that, you know, they seem to be fighting for the tower and maybe the fate of all the worlds. And one of the reasons Roland wants to get there is to see what's up there. One of the reasons that the man in black wanted to get there was to to keep Roland from getting there, but also to see what power he himself could get. Mm -hmm. And really we learned that the Crimson King doesn't have such pure motives. He's according to one of the kings to bring the tower down and to get there before you get there. That's what the Crimson King wanted. I'm not sure he has ever cared over much about understanding it, just about beating you to something you want and then snatching it away from you. So really the Crimson King's just sort of a troll. He just wants to be a dick to roll and like, oh, you want this? Well, I'm just going to take it away from you. Yeah. I guess I had never thought that the Crimson King was directly opposed to Roland in as much as it's sort of laid out here that the Crimson King's prime motivation is to keep Roland from getting something. Yeah, it doesn't really feel like it makes sense. Yeah, that seems to have elevated Roland to a higher level than I thought he was. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I got the sense that Crimson King wanted the fall of the all universes and that maybe Roland was trying to stop that. But this seems more like, ah, it's not so much that is just, I want to just not have Roland have it. Yeah. One of the, the Crimson King's minions, it may have been Walter at an earlier book, makes the claim the Crimson King wants to take down the tower because he knows it will end everything and the chaos that will result, perhaps the nothing that will result, he will still have a pocket of something and therefore he will be the ruler of all things because destroying the tower will destroy everything that he doesn't have dominion over. And that is a somewhat sensible evil master plan. Right. And it doesn't involve knowing the identity of the protagonist who is trying his hardest to stop that. You're just being evil for evil's sake. You have this evil plan that affects everything. And there are probably going to be people that challenge you on that, but you don't necessarily know their names until they step up to your door. Meanwhile, apparently the Crimson King has just been tooling along, having dominion over just about everything already. He commands whole races of people. Yeah. And destroys parts of the world or makes them worse at a whim, what more does he need? And it's just like, oh, Roland wants that thing? I don't think so. I'm going to go like the last donut. I'm just going to lick it and put it back just so no one else will eat it. You know? Yeah, that's just the being a troll. Yeah. We also learned that the Crimson King is undead because he's committed suicide by swallowing a spoon. And so, therefore, he's not alive anymore, and yet... Therefore, can't die? Yeah, and he's at the tower, but he's not really in the tower. He's in, like, a little balcony off the tower. Um, Again, and we're being told all this via a potentially unreliable narrator in this, mm-hmm. this man who's got this glamour of King Stephen King on him. But Roland senses that part of it's true and that the guy has no reason to lie. But it all seems a little sketchy. Yeah. Another thing that kind of bothered me about that is the timing of all this. Hmm. We as the readers have had awareness of the Crimson King since book four? Definitely by five. Yep. We've known of the Crimson King. And actually, maybe in the, the updated version of book one, in the Golgotha, I think maybe the Crimson King's mentioned. Yeah. Basically, we've known of the Crimson King from basically the beginning of this series of books. I have always had the impression, based on what his minions have shared about him and his motivations, that he has been locked and trapped in the tower. He has made his way to the tower, if not being trapped in it like he supposedly is now. He made his way to the tower a long time ago, long enough ago that it's like time out of mind. Like he's always been right. at the tower at this point. That's why he is the the Crimson King. I mean, he elevated himself to that position. And so Roland needs to get to the tower and potentially face him. And now we're learning that like, I don't know, I guess a couple of weeks ago, he swallowed the spoon, made himself undead, mounted his trusty steed, rode off to the tower, climbed to the top, messed up, because he couldn't enter the top floor, and he's stuck now in the the, t- the dark tower. Yep. Like, wow, really? You know, so like if Roland was just moving a little faster, he would have- Gotten there first, beat him. <laughs> he would have beaten him, or first, the Crimson King would still be at La Casse 
Roy Roos or whatever it's called, this doesn't add, add up to me. And I know time's weird and directions don't make sense, and but something has to have already been in place for Roland to be on this quest. And it seems like all this happened too recently. Maybe all this will be explained as we get a little bit further. And this was unreliable narrator stuff, but it was a giant info dump and they're on their way to figure it out and we'll figure it out too. I guess the main thing we're supposed to take away from this is, and then to sort of circle back to where we started with the relationship between Susanna and Roland, is that the glamours tell him right now the 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 universe has been saved. They stopped the tower from falling. They've stopped the breakers. The beams, in fact, not only will they return, they'll they'll grow stronger and they'll come back, all of the beams. Yeah. As a result of they they've done. So really, as you said earlier, they've completed their mission and the tower will stand. And because of the way the Crimson King is trapped, all is good. And the only way that could possibly change is if the Crimson King were to get this special ruin, rune that would allow them passage further into the tower. And where does this rune exist? But it's a sigil on the revolvers that Roland has. And so only if Roland were to go up there and the Crimson King were to get the guns, would this potentially cause the tower to maybe fall again. And so they've laid out the plan that is, hey, if you just stay here, everything will be good. But if you continue to go to the tower and you screw up, everything will be bad again. And so this is yeah. what Roland and Susanna have to face because Roland says, well, yeah, he is so confident in his abilities. He's like, oh, I won't screw up. I'll take care of the Crimson King and move on through the tower. And Susanna's like, are you sure? Because that's a lot to risk here. And again, Roland's confidence and lack of imagination. Of course I will. How would I ever lose? So I think that that's what we're supposed to take away from this is the the one big piece of truth that will come out of this and really sets the stakes for the rest of the book. The stakes being that there are no stakes unless Roland forces them. Yes, and that Roland is so prideful because they push, right? Isn't this where, where they push and say he's made a promise to do this? And they like, well, who did you make a promise to? And he's just made a promise to himself. Mm-hmm. And so- that's really not a promise that needs to happen, but that's what they're going to do. At least that's what Roland's going to do. Yeah. It was his New Year's resolution. Jay, I think all of this is starting to twist my mind around so that we need to get to fun stuff, which is very straight and simple. It's something, <laughs> some stuff that is fun and is not going to hurt my brain. Let's spare your brain by getting some fun stuff going. As I mentioned earlier, I love how Detta talks, but every once in a while, Susanna has a great line. And there's one where she thinks, she felt as if all but the last two ounces of fuck you had been squeezed out of her. <laughs> that is a good one. Uh, that's a brilliant line. I love it. That's a good line for the repertoire. Yeah. There's been many times when I've had all but the last two ounces of fuck you squeezed out of me. <laughs> exactly. You had just mentioned a few minutes ago that time and directions are messed up. And one of the things that we've been told is that the stopwatch that Roland has, which is perfectly timed because it's one of the best handcrafted clocks there is, when it starts acting weird, that's when they know they'll be approaching the tower. Mm -hmm. And Susanna makes the good point, since all time is relative, how are we going to know that the watch is screwed up? Like We can't just tell by looking at it. Turns out that Roland's got a neat trick. 
he can determine the exact amount of time a minute is. Uh-huh. It's very useful. Something that Cork told him. It's very useful. You can go out in the middle of the woods and know exactly how long time has passed and then show back up to not get beat up by Cork. And I thought, you know, it would have been nice if Cork had taught him directions as well as he taught him time with all the <laughs> way that things are screwy. But, you know, I guess it's more important to know how long a minute's passed. Yeah. Why doesn't Roland just do like in Hudson Hawk? When Bruce Willis and Danny Aiello just sing a specific song that it has a specific runtime so they can time their cat burglaries just right. There you go. I mean, then you don't even need the fancy <laughs> pocket watch. Just sing Luck Be a Lady or something like that and you're good. <laughs> There's a, a really moving part of this part of the book when Susanna has a dream in which she's spending some time in Central Park with Eddie and Jake and they have brought her some hot cocoa and she thinks it's hot chocolate mit schlag and i was kind of curious i by the context i kind of figured that this meant with whipped cream but i wanted to make sure so when i did a little bit of googling i found that there was a lot of i wouldn't say controversy but let's say disagreement over what mit schlag means and i think in the context of hot cocoa mit schlag does definitely mean with whipped cream. But there are other translations for the German word that mean other things that have nothing to do with food and nothing to do with whipped cream. I thought it was kind of fun to see how people were arguing on the internet, imagine that, about what hot chocolate Mitschlag meant. And even to the point of saying somebody from New York, like the character of Susanna, in the time period in which she lived in New York, <laughs> wouldn't know these German words and would never think Mitch Slag. But I suspect that somebody making that argument would forget the fact that there are a lot of German-speaking people in New York have long been in New York, and it's the Jewish population in New York. Mm. There are more Jewish people in New York than anywhere else in the world at this point, and a lot of them came from German-speaking countries. Sure. And the Yiddish that they speak in New York is something that becomes part of the common tongue. If you're a New Yorker, chances are you have absorbed some Yiddish. And I don't know if this is technically a Yiddish word or just a German word, but in a lot of ways, they overlap to the point where they are, like a lot of the, the Yiddish words are just German words. And that could easily be something that a New Yorker would know. Even though I didn't know it and I'm from the New York area, I learned something from the Stephen King book about hot chocolate. And the next time I'm in New York and I get a hot cocoa, I'm going to order it Mitch Schlag and see if I get a funny look. I thought it was cool. And I like the controversy over it online. Well, we do have a number of listeners in Germany, if our statistics are to be believed. And if you are one of those listeners who has a knowledge of German, or our German yourself, enter our discussion and let us know. Or perhaps Austria. They they do know how to work desserts over there in Austria. So, And maybe too closely related to the hot chocolate comment, King had a great description of some of the really gross and disgusting sounds that Susanna got to hear when she was running from the giant worm in the tunnel. And one of those was like mud being squeezed in a vinyl raincoat. Yeah. This is when King is great, when he turns all of his writing prowess towards 
describing something that is utterly disgusting. Yes. So I'll bring up the fact that sternum is an important part of the escape from the giant worm creature. I was always fascinated by sterno. My aunt and uncle had a catering business where they used it to keep the dishes warmed. Mm -hmm. And I always wondered when I was a kid how that gel worked with the flames and everything. So to see it put to good use as a weapon really warmed my heart. No pun intended. I see what you did there. I feel like I'm quoting Susanna a lot here. I love the heavy looking on phrase that she remembers to describe her supervising while others do the the hard work in a job. (laughs) I remember when I was a kid, I used to spend time with my uncle and his three sons who all did things like carpentry and electrician and plumbing work. And I was a little kid, so I would hang out because I thought it was fun to hang out with my relatives and watch them do the stuff. And they would give me a hard time because I was just supervising. I wasn't working. (laughs) That's right. And so I can think back to that time and how I was doing the heavy looking on. The Cotet's approaching the castle of the Crimson King. Susanna notes that it looks like a weirding village Mm. and then goes on to mention a number of names that you may or may not recognize. I I knew a couple of them, but didn't know a few others. So one was H.P. Lovecraft, who's best known for his Cthulhu mythos and sort of creatures beyond our understanding and world. He wrote a lot of stories and books about that. King was obviously influenced heavily by Lovecraft, and a lot of his books call on those Cthulhu mythos. Um, Another name was Clark Ashton Smith, who was an author and sculptor and also traipsed in the Lovecraftian circle. William Hope Hodgson is a British author best known for a book called The House on the Borderlands, not very far off from the Badlands in this section. And then finally, Lee Brown Coy, who is a pulp artist who did also weird, strange, science fiction-y pulp works. And so this is obviously King calling on some of his influences here to help set the mood and scene for the castle of the Crimson King. Mm, Pretty cool. All right. Well, that ends our fun stuff. Before we wrap this up, Jay, I think we had a interesting comment on Facebook recently. One of our longtime listeners, Sarah Elms, wrote in that Sean mentioned that Eddie is the first member of the quartet that we get to know. I would disagree with that assessment as Jake was the first member that we get to know in book one. Granted, he didn't officially join the quartet until later, but he's still the first member we meet along Roland's way. What's your response to that? Well, that's a good point, Sarah. It is true that Jake is the first person we meet in book one. I don't know how much his personality is brought out in book one as we get of Eddie in book two and then Jake's is more pulled out in book three. So while technically you're right, and really that's the best kind of being right, Uh (laughs) I think I've known Eddie longer because I think the way King has treated Jake in that first book possibly intentionally is more of a pawn and really just something for Roland to react to in the face of the man in black. So that is a good point. And you are absolutely right that we do meet Jake first. But from a quartet perspective, I feel like I'd known Eddie better. Not Eddie better, Eddie better. But thank you. I mean, this is what we enjoy about this show is hearing from our fans and listeners. 
And even if you're not fans, those who want to comment on on things we we do and say, I mean, we we hope to have a discussion because we are by no means experts on these books. We had a someone on Twitter reach out to us recently and ask, "How does Roland have all these bullets? The ones he had were wet at the end of or in the middle of book two. How does he keep having more bullets to shoot?" My response to that was, "I think that's just." King hoping that we have a suspension of disbelief that potentially unlimited ammo. I don't know if you have a thought on that one, Jay. I'm right there with you. I mean, it's like Roland and his guns and his marksmanship are to the point of just basically being magic. And all right. I mean, they don't load themselves or he doesn't just get to keep pulling the trigger forever. But yeah, whenever he's needed to fire his gun, he's been able to. It is a uh, an interesting thing to point out because that's a major plot point in book two, that they have limited ammunition, only two guns, and some of the ammunition that they actually have is wet and can't be trusted. Yep. And there's another point during book two when he can stock up on a bunch of ammo when he goes into New York, and then I don't think we ever talk about it again. No. Like, the book never mentions a stock of ammo ever again. Right. You know, it's not like they, they found a cache in Lud or something, or- the old folks at River Crossing said, oh, we have all these bullets that'll perfectly fit your guns, but no guns, so here. Somebody should go back through the book and figure out how many people Roland's killed and how many shots he's fired. I know we couldn't get an exact number of shots he's fired, but when you consider the fact that he's a gunslinger and the first book was called a gunslinger and the guns are a big piece of it, we may find out that he hasn't shot as many shots as we think he has. Hmm. Hey, you know where he might have gotten some bullets? In Took's uh, department store, or whatever it's called, in Colibrin Sturgis. Yeah, maybe. Because they were able to buy things like blue jeans and stuff. And Yeah, true enough. Other people had guns, although some of them didn't work. So maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, it would have been nice when they came back to New York City and got to the Tet Corporation if they re- helped reload everything and given them a whole bunch of new bullets and maybe a bazooka instead of just a gun. That would have helped. Or instead of a book. <laughs> yeah. Hey, here's a stack of paper. You could use that, right? Yeah. How about a sweater instead? Yeah. Pair of gloves. Your fancy psychics didn't tell us it was going to be cold. Yeah. Good job. Hey, you do realize I'm missing two fingers. Can I get some bionic fingers here? Help me grip another gun. Jay, we're getting giddy and silly. That must mean that that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com, and our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower, or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover Book 7 of The Dark Tower, The Dark Tower, Part 4, Chapters 4 through 6. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. The sweet, soothing sounds of the Dark Tower Podcast. Only on WJAZ Soft Jazz.